Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we're talking about the legacy of George Herbert Walker Bush, our president who recently died. Much of what you're hearing out there is about the softer side of the Bush legacy, his bipartisan efforts, uh, his shepherding of the end of the Cold War. We're going to talk about some of the warts of the president's legacy. And doing that with me will be Rita Beamish. She's a copy editor here at The Chronicle, and she covered the Bush presidency and his runs for the White House for the Associated Press. Today, the Bush legacy on It's All Political. Rita Beamish, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you. Now, it's very easy for you know Americans to get nostalgic when, when somebody dies, uh, especially one of our presidents, and uh, it's easy to drift in sort of hagiography territory. They only remember the good things about the deceased, but not the bad. So I was like, very excited when you wanted to come down and, and talk to us about President Bush, warts and all, someone who covered his campaign, covered his presidency, covered his reelection campaign. And so we're going to talk about the good, and then we're also going to talk about uh, Willie Horton, around Contra and his opposition to the Civil Rights Act and all kinds of other stuff about him. So first of all, you, you, covered, for, you covered George H.W. Uh, Bush for the AP, right? Right. For, for give us when to when. Um, I started covering his presidential campaign when he first ran for president. So that was 1988. And then it was assigned immediately to when he won to the White House mm-hmm. and covered him through his presidency and uh, most of his reelection campaign. So when you travel, would travel with him yes. and, and such. Okay. Um, you, and, you, uh, and I want uh, listeners to, to go check out Rita's great piece that she wrote on a very cool remembrance of Bush um, that's on sfchronicle.com right now. Um, in which you sort of put him in context with our current president, President Trump. You wrote, and this is of uh, uh, Bush, he could seem stern, finger-wagging, tinny. So I was surprised when I first met him. As Associated Press reporter on the tarmac boarding his campaign plane, that in person he was gregarious and approachable, thoughtful, energetic, and genial. So he was, he was an approachable person. Very warm, nice person, and you know everyone kind of in his orbit would probably say that. Yes. Yeah. So, what was the what was that difference between him, like sort of his um, his behind the scenes persona, and then right. this, you know when he sort of the tinny persona he did project? Yeah. Um, oh, so I think that he, for some reason, he just he's very good on an interpersonal level, but. Just not so much um, when he's trying to speechify or you know talk to a large audience. So I think there was just that was a personality glitch. But you would get him in an informal briefing. Um, you know, often he would come into the briefing room and take questions from us reporters just on spur of the moment, which was 
was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, has, you has could it ask in a while? him anything. Yeah. Um, and he would be funny and self-deprecating and make little jokes. And um, I will say, though, when it was campaign time, when he was political, when he was campaigning, uh, then he became very annoyed with the press corps. It was, it was kind of different, you know, because we were poking and picking at him and, you know, trying to see behind the spin and saying, how come you're not doing better? And, you know, the typical uh, political analysis type question. So he did have a, a, a much more of an aggravation with us around those really? situations. So would you, would, yeah. And yeah. As, on the stump, what was he like when, when you would see him at rallies and stuff? Was he stilted mode? I remember him being a bit of a... Uh, like a yeller on the speech was well, yeah. not like that. Well, you have to remember though when when they go when they're campaigning, they're always campaigning to friendlies, mm. so they get a lot of applause, they get a lot of feedback, and but yeah, you know, um, kind of a yeller. Um, really painted his opponent, Michael Dukakis. They 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 he chose some real hardball operatives, Lee Atwater, his campaign manager, and Roger Ailes, who were uh, just um, you know the toughest uh, political operatives you could find, and they. Uh, you know, they really went after Dukakis, wanted to paint him as um, unpatriotic. Right. Uh, the issues it, in that campaign are, are, sound silly now. Yeah. So let's, yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit quaint about it. Like, by the, today's standards, Yes, really. quaint by today's standards, exactly. Yes. But one of the issues in that campaign was the Pledge of Allegiance. Explain that right. to us. Um, I think that Massachusetts, uh, that Dukakis um, was not in favor of an effort to um, require school teachers to do the Pledge of Allegiance before class. He relied, it was a court decision that said he could. And he, and he was not on board with the effort to make, to, you know, force that. Um, and so, you know, as politics, as they do, uh, this is this is seen as an opening that you can really, you know, paint a guy as out of touch, liberal, unpatriotic, and they, and they went for it. And Dukakis, I mean, you couldn't meet a more, you know, public minded servant, yeah. you know, very straight up guy. Um, and I think, you know, in Bush, you know, in later in his writing and everything, I referred to Dukakis as a, as a good guy, a nice guy. Right. Um, and, 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 and Dukakis by turn said, well, you know, I don't think Bush was a racist, but some of the campaign stuff that happened was. So, you know, these are these are political campaigns. Right. But the most racist uh, ad that he did and, and one of the most racist ads in the history of American politics is the Willie Horton ad. And it's still referred to today. In fact, right. it was referred, referred to a couple of weeks ago in in, uh, in connection with an ad that, that the uh, that President Trump uh was uh, was pushing on the campaign trail. Tell us about what the Willie Horton ad was. Yeah, so just to preface by saying, um, as much as he was a, a you know bipartisan guy, Bush and and could really could be magnanimous when he needed to go, you know, down and dirty and to get to win an election, he was a, he was a politician. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was a tough politician. Mm-hmm. So his Oppo team, Oppo, Oppo research. Um, found uh, a Mass- the Massachusetts furlough law that allowed convicted criminals, even murderers, to, to go on furlough. And as a matter of fact, Al Gore in the primary campaign against um, Dukakis had raised it and uh, had used it, you know, tried to use it against Dukakis, but didn't really become that big of a thing. So when the Bush team found it, they said, um, yeah, okay, well, this, is, this fits right into what we're, how we're trying to paint Dukakis. Here's going to be his story. He's letting prisoners out on furlough, and then they are free to commit crimes, in which a guy named Willie Horton did. He raped someone and assaulted someone while on a furlough, and he was a convicted murderer at the time. Um, And of course, Dukakis found out about this and was horrified. He he had inherited this program. And so um, uh, the Bush team may, you know, 
made an ad about this, but I think the racial part comes from again one of these um, independent expenditure. Yeah, this groups, is not the campaign. This is an outside group. You know who yeah. actually used the photo, and Willie Horton is an African American guy. So now this became a racial thing, and the Bush team, of was, course, the images you know, were mug shots and very you know, grainy. Very, yeah, very yeah. tough, you know, murdery looking guy. And the Bush team, um, you know, disavowed that they were doing anything racial, that they had just pointed out that this program. So, but again, you know, later on his deathbed, Lee Atwater, who was the campaign chairman, he disavowed, you know, he said that he, know, he was apologized. He yes. said that was not fair to Dukakis. Mm-hmm. And so, but the president uh, never disavowed the ads. Uh, his campaign did, said that they had nothing to do with the the no, photo ad, but they spoke out about them. Um, the, the Bush, President Bush, as far as I know, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. But. Um, not, not. Uh, I think it's just through his campaign. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the, you know, the the ad with that that organization, they said we have nothing to do with that. Um, he himself, I, I'm sorry, I don't recall if he had spoke to it personally. He also chose uh, Dan Quayle as his running mate, um, which was a surprise to many people. There are many other folks out there. Um, but this was a basically he was trying to appease the uh, conservatives uh, in the party who he, he needed to win over because they, they never really thought of him as they Absolutely. never thought of uh, they uh, George Bush as one him. as them. Absolutely. So tell us about Dan Quayle and why that uh, someone had given me a picture, a T-shirt with a picture of Dan Quayle on it that said President's Prayer Club on it because nobody wanted Bush to die because then they were concerned about what Dan Quayle would be as president. I spent a lot of time with Dan Quayle. That was part of my beat was to cover him. And um, I'm actually kind of a Quayle defender. I think he got a bad rap as being stupid. And um, he had a persona that was a a little bit goofy, and he would do things like spell potato wrong. But um, he actually, you know, when he was a senator, um, he had been on uh, – he he had been sort of steeped in foreign policy, specifically Russia, Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And so the things he knew about, he did did know. Um, and I think but he, he had this youthful image and he just seemed like he wasn't the most substantive, especially compared to Bush. I think yep. his, his youthfulness appealed to Bush. He liked that generation, generational aspect. Wasn't there something where he, they, I don't know if it was Bush who said this or someone in the Republican Party said, um, oh, he will, he will appeal to women. To female voters, do do was that out there? Am I, I remember am I, that, but I don't remember who who put who said that, that out yeah, there. But that was definitely out there. But I will say that Quilt was an excellent politician as well, and they ended up sending him all over the country. He would meet with those county chairmen. He would go to all the states, and they couldn't get enough of him. Yeah, conservatives loved him. Yeah, he, they yeah. thought he was great, and he, you know, he. We went on a trip to um, a couple of trips to Latin America, which was still very big in the news in those days. And he did not have, he did just did not have the depth in that subject matter, and didn't didn't have the background. So he had to you know bone up on it and learn it. But he could, you know, he could. But it, it was kind of a thing where the Latin Americans were like, "Why are you sending us this guy? He doesn't even know our issues." And so that did come around. But I do not think I think he gets a little over, it's a little over the top that he was you know not bright. <laughs> so he. Um but it goes back to the one of the core criticisms of President Bush was that he was not his own man. Um, when he was uh, when he ran for Senate, 1964, he took some hard right positions. He, he was opposed the Civil Rights Act, he opposed the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, um, and then he, he copped to that later. He said, "I I took quote far right positions to get elected. I won't do that again." But he 
he did do that again. <laughs> well, you have to remember, so in those days, that when that was 1964 when he ran for the Senate, mm-hmm. which he lost, um, and Goldwater was the standard bearer for right. the party. And so much as when Bush became Reagan's vice president, he was a very loyal Republican. And I think that he was, you know, that was Goldwater's position, that the Civil Rights Bill contained unconstitutional aspects. And Bush himself... Um, sort of made himself, I think, see it that way, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, again, you know, when he was with Reagan, he became more conservative and he became much more pro-choice. And so a lot of these issues that he would have been more moderate about, you know, he, he would, you know, kind of make his own uh, worldview shape to whoever he was working for. Is that a, is that a loyalty thing or what, what drove I think, that? I think it's think? loyalty and ambition. Mm. You know, and I but I will point out that when he was in Congress, and by the way, so he does get elected, you know, to, to Congress, the House, yeah, yeah in, in, from Texas, very conservative, um, you know, white district, and he did vote for an important um, civil rights bill on housing, mm-hmm. and he went home and had to just take incredible flack for that. He knew his constituents were against it, so I think that his civil rights and sort of his issue on uh, you know. His, kind of profile and record on race is, is really mixed in that regard. Mm, mm. But back to your question, yeah, I do think that he he served Nixon, you know, and that was his president. And he Nixon put him as head of the Republican National Committee when things were going right. south. Oh, and the, he, the worst possible time at Watergate. Yeah, there, and he yeah. just said, you know, that was his duty, so he was going to do it. And the same when he served Reagan. And I think when he became president, now he was the boss, and I think you saw him become a lot more his his own person. I I, I, yeah. I I felt that he shifted that way. He and when he was uh, when he ran for president uh, in 1980, the first time, um, he was he said uh, Reagan's economic plan was quote voodoo economics because of you, know, you would raise the deficit uh, be, but with all these tax cuts and investments and, and defense spending. And and it doesn't they, add the, up. It yeah. doesn't add up. Yeah. Um, but yet he, he never talked about voodoo economics after you know he he lost to Reagan and became the vice president. As you said, he was very loyal. Um, and by the way, those are pretty common, you know, when primary opponents, that, you know, lose and somebody else is the standard bearer, then they all come around and embrace and, and endorse each other. And right. so that's not uncommon, but right. he was definitely in that mode. Yeah, he was, uh, and he was also pro-choice and that and then he wasn't uh, pro-choice after, uh, yeah. after that. I'm not sure he was ever exactly pro-choice. I think he, he was, but he was very big on supporting Planned Parenthood and birth control and was not a hard, you know, pro-choice person. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was yeah, pro, moderate, moderate Republican. pro-life person, yeah. I'd say, yeah. So, and he did have some wins as president. I mean, he did some, we, we should say, some of the good things he did. Uh, presiding over the Cold War, of course, without a shot fired, as the saying goes. That was, I mean, that's formidable. Um, and uh, he also supported the American Disability Act. Which, um, by the way, was a huge burden on business and regulation, and of, of course, the type of thing that you know has has Republicans just hate that type of thing. But right. it was you know he he pushed it through and got huge support for it. So, right. Yeah. And then, um, what do you think like was his signature domestic achievement? I think it was exactly that, and another one, uh, probably second, um, the Clean Air Act. Uh, uh, amendments of um, uh, 1991, I think. Um, 
you know, those were both, especially in the clean, in the case of the Clean Air Act, even more so was a real bipartisan negotiation that he went through. And it was ex- extremely important, critical legislation that, that uh, the Clean Air Act needed to be updated. There's many more toxins, many more chemicals. And that was, that was a tougher one to get through. And I think to this day, planks of that are, are still unfolding or still litigated in the court because, you know, um, uh, environmental legislation always has a timeline on it. So certain things will phase in certain years. So as these things have phased in over the years, they've been challenged. And like I said, the Republicans hate them. And uh, But that was um, pretty significant. And he was also um, – uh, he also, of course, had the, there was the invasion of Iraq um, uh, because of the uh, aggression, quote-unquote – that Iraq was on the border of Kuwait, had invaded Kuwait. Uh, there was major American oil interests there, Absolutely. And, and that's when the and the, and the U.S. Uh, invaded Iraq. Uh, the that military action was over in a hundred days. It was seen as a, as a success, but you know, as time went on, Bush got criticism for not following Saddam right. back to Baghdad, taking him out then. Um, yeah, and and you history know, change. You're, you're, How did, what was the at the time? What was the contemporary reasoning there? Oh, so you know, you'll because now you you'll hear he, within his own team, you know, people saying he did the right thing, and mm-hmm. I think, but he himself later questioned it. Maybe mm-hmm. I shouldn't have. Um, but the reasoning was, you know, and I think this was Colin Powell's view. You know, we don't need to go pound him into the ground. You know, remember the Red Army was on the run, and our troops were just going through empty roads. There was not anyone to to fire at. Yeah. And um, I think there's also a risk that if you took away um, the strong man at the head of that country, that it, you had a vacuum with different interests and nobody knew exactly what would happen. And we had no planning for that. So in a way, you know, you keep the, the figurehead autocrat, but he weakened. Um, so there was that. But it was, it was also just, I think it fit with Bush's style, which is not to kind of gloat and go in and hammer the guy and, you know, pound him to the ground. I think Mm. he had, um, it was a very thoughtfully weighed out, I don't, Mm. you know, I'm not saying one way or the other if it was right, Right. but it was uh, something that he had a very strong team, very thoughtful team. They really debated these things and were super strategic about it. So I think you will hear Jim Baker to this day say that it was the right thing to do. Um, and yeah. And did he, um, so then he's, uh, his, at the time, his approval rating was like 91% or something. 91%. I mean, we're talking, first of all, the president we're looking at right now is about, well, on a good day, 45 or so. Uh, and it's in California, it's about 33, 32% approval rating, uh, just for context there. But that quickly, um, fell. There was a recession, um, uh, was starting to come along. Uh, he had to uh, uh, go back on his uh, "Read My Lips, No New Taxes" pledge, and he lost support of uh, his core Republicans because that's you know that's that's you might as well be you might as well be spitting on the flag at that point uh, to that crowd. What? How did? What did you? How did you see him at the time? Sort of grappling with these issues. Did you? The impression it's some you know uh, it was that oh he he's inattentive to domestic issues. Is that? Did you get that sense or why? Why was that? I don't think he was as, um, I don't want to say concerned, but I just think the international stage really was what kind of, which gripped him and riveted him and he was good at. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say one thing about that is that it was very remarkable when he first t- became president that 
I remember him coming into the briefing room again, just spontaneously within a couple of days of being elected. And so we all just started throwing every question at him. And a lot of them were about all different countries of the world and different. And you couldn't mention a country that he wasn't able to come up with the not only the head of state, but he would say, well, yes, I know that, you know, uh, prime minister so-and-so and foreign minister this and that. And he would know all these people. So he really he liked that. You know, he had been U.N. ambassador. He had had, had a posting in China. And he had had that. Um, he just had a facility for that. So on the domestic side, um, I think you know he knew he was. People were saying, "Oh, he's a shoe in for reelection," mm. and he would say things like, "You know," and you can see it in his diary le- later and his his writing that he knew that those fortunes could fall very quickly. Um, but he didn't have a big agenda of something he was trying to do. He wasn't trying to, you know, you know, turn the country domestically in a certain way. Right. He was. There's no end welfare as we know it. There was you no know, great society so it, program. Yeah, any yeah. So it was really, you know, a few programs, and then Congress would send him bills, and he would sign them or not. Um, but I think that um, the other side, you know, the Clinton team was really able to portray him and, and write his story as being inattentive to domestic issues and it's the economy stupid mm-hmm. and he's the out Clinton, of touch. The Clinton campaign logo. You know, the, and he's an elitist. Motto. You know, he's a patrician. Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand the common man. And Bill Clinton, of course, was so good at that. So, yeah. um, you know, he, he, he maybe it might be too much to say he's a reactive president, but I think he did deal with and sort of shepherd things that came along. And then there were those sort of those big things that he took and, and would do. He banned semi-automatic weapons, mm. uh, imported semi-automatics, which wow. was a... Can you imagine a Republican president exactly. even, and even you know, going that close expired to that under, yeah. that was a That was an, um, had, a, had a finite end date on it, and it expired under his son, and nobody took it up and, and passed it again because Congress wouldn't do it at that and, point. Uh, he was also... Um, so he, he, he lost the re- re-election... But on the way out the door, he did something that was also kind of weird. And um, his one of his last acts as president was that he pardoned the folks who were involved, some of the major folks who were involved in the Iran-Contra uh, uh, scandal. First of all, we have to we always remember that we have to explain what Iran-Contra was. Why don't you give us a quick uh, rundown of what yeah. that was yeah, so and that why w- that was a scandal? Okay, so where there was there was a, there was sort of twin parallel paths there, which was one um, we had hostages being held in in Lebanon, and the Bush administration wanted the country of Iran to help free those hostages, mm-hmm. and that ended up being although the publicly stated position of the administration is we don't negotiate with terrorists mm-hmm. who had taken the hostages. Um, behind the scenes, they were very much willing to funnel some, some weaponry to Iran if Iran would help get the hostages out. Mm-hmm. So that was what that was about. And they and it was just in defiance of their own policy and they and they wouldn't, you know, they were not acknowledging it publicly and Israel was involved. So it was really kind of a whole convoluted um, thing on that front. But then once you sell the, the arms and you get the money from Iran, um, now it turns out that we are also trying to support the right-wing rebels in Nicaragua. And Congress had gotten very uneasy with that. They didn't like that the rebel groups, the Contras, as they were known, were very, you know, um, uh, their behavior was uh, not up to uh, the standards of what Congress thought it should be, sort of thuggish. And um, so Congress said, no, we're not going to support them anymore. And here is where the money from Iran, from the weaponry, could secretly be used without needing to ask Congress, hey, give us more money to help the Contras. Now they had their own little pile of money from a secret arms deal 
that never had been acknowledged. And then that was used to continue supporting the Contras. So this was going around the will of Congress, you know, lying in public, lying to Congress. It was, uh, and it was begun during the Reagan administration. It was a Reagan administration, standard, definitely, yes. uh, program. Not but, the, but the vice president was president in some of these message, these meetings where there was the, right. with this arms for hostages uh, deal right. would, would be uh, discussed. So what did he do on his way out the door? He, he issued right. some pardons. So there was a, um, at first there we, we had the Tower Commission report, um, which was a, a presidential commission to investigate the whole thing. And Bush was not implicated. But the, you also had a special counsel. That was a guy named Lawrence Walsh who was um, bringing people in, you know, was actually indicting people and still investigating people at the time that Bush was about to run for president, at the end of the Reagan administration. And so, um, and then this continued. So when Bush finished his term, there, there were several high-ranking officials who were either um, had pled guilty to lying to Congress, withholding information, that kind of thing. Um, or were about to go to trial, including the Secretary of Defense at the time, or former Secretary of Defense, and Bush pardoned them all. And by that, you you know, Lawrence Walsh, the special prosecutor, accused him of a cover-up because mm-hmm. if you couldn't, if you didn't have trial, that would um, prevent all this information from coming out, including what might have been Bush's own role or what meetings he had been right, in, right. you know, and where we could really explore all of this. And so. Over the years, um, I think there's been investigative reporting and a lot of questions have been raised um, that really may never be answered because now some of the people are dying and some of the records are still ambiguous. But, uh, you know, Bush basically he said he did not know about the, the Contra, you know, um, funnel. that, that And um, he ultimately, I think, said that he, he knew about the Iran initiative, but he saw it as not an arms for hostages, but as opening a channel to Iran that we needed to <laughs> have friendly relations in the region. And, and it's more like that. And a lot of people in the administration would say, openly say, you know, we, yeah, we need to open a door to Iran. We need to get them uh, you know, more in in the fold, so to speak. Yeah. So it was. It's. It's. I think it's still a big conundrum. And he, the fact that um, he did pardon those guys, um, like the special counsel was livid. Yeah, because <laughs> livid. It, it, essentially it ended all of, of his. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, one to get, there's you have a little coda with uh, President Bush. You went to visit him. Uh, but 2011 was yeah, it? Yeah. Uh-huh. And tell us what happened. You uh, you were you're down there for for fun, right? This is not a uh, you know. Just went to okay. say you know. And over the years, um, you know, I had email exchanges with him here and there, and I actually had seen him a few times where I would be at an event. I lived in New York for a while, mm-hmm. and, and he might be there, or um, you know, just on occasion type of things like that, and. Uh, so my friend um, from the New York Times, Maureen Dowd, and I decided to go visit him. Um, he was not doing too well health-wise at the time. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, let's, let's just go and, and see him. And so um, so we did, and he uh, we went to his favorite pizza joint. We thought we'd be going to some, you know, kind of <laughs> leather seat, white tablecloth, country club luncheon. And it literally is this. The place point. in Houston? Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's where we went. with. Uh, and so uh, anyway, we, we chatted, and he was, you know, we talked to him uh about just what was going on, and ask, we're asking his thoughts. By this time, he'd been out of you know out of the presidency for a number of years, um, and uh, we asked him what he thought about Donald Trump, who at the time was 
considering or talking about running for president. Yeah. And if you remember, I think this was the was this around the time maybe that Barack Obama kind of made fun of him at the White House Correspondents Dinner. It was right on that same era that kind of triggered him. Yes. That it was such yeah. a joke. How yeah. could he run? But in the meantime, President Bush, his, he wanted his son Jeb to run for president. And this was kind of always the plan. And uh, he said he said that Trump's an ass. <laughs> That's what he told us. <laughs> and just uh, so um, that was his opinion. I don't know how well they knew each other, but um, he obviously didn't like what he saw at that time. And I mean, I don't think that was any surprise for anybody that knew the Bushes that they would feel that way. But at his core, what, what was George Bush? Was he a moderate was he a, a social conservative? Was he a chameleon? What what was he? I think he was a conservative, but he was also somebody who um, was, as I explained about the Americans for, with Disabilities Act, mm-hmm. he, was, he was pretty open-minded to listening and being yeah. persuaded and about Dole, things. And Bob Dole, of course, pushed that. Was Bob happening. Dole pushed that, and he had um, his White House counsel, Boyd and Gray, a very conservative guy, but his best friend, um, Evan Kemp, who at the time was the head of the um, um, EEOC, Economic Opportunities Commission, mm-hmm. Economic Employment Opportunities Commission, was was, wheel, was in a wheelchair. And so I think the two of them talked to Bush and to explained to him and Bob Dole, you know, this is really important. And so it wasn't something that it was a natural fit because it was so much regulation. But I think he was open to hearing points of view. He ended up uh, banning a lot of offshore oil drilling in federal waters you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily think. Here he is a former oil guy. Right. You wouldn't necessarily think that that would be something an oil businessman would do. But no. he, he did that. So, um, you know, I, I would – but if you had to say – I think he was a conservative, yeah. So if you're back at the AP writing George Bush's obit, what is his – What's his farewell? What's his? They the, did a the good legacy? job. Yes, they did a good job. They did a fine job. But what would you what would you say if you if you had to, you know as someone who was uh, ringside for him? What would you say his legacy is? It's, it's complex. Yeah, and I think you would have to say probably the the man who you know uh, shepherded the country through the end of the Cold War, and um, led a successful uh, Iraq War. And you'd probably mention uh, you know but but faltered in capturing the public imagination and domestic affairs. And the second, gra- you know, you might second graph. You might mention his his domestic achievements, a couple those couple of things, um, and then you probably, you know, a few graphs in, you would get to some of these controversies at Willie Horton and Iran Contra. You have to mention that that's part of his legacy. You know, these guys are all multifaceted politicians. You don't you don't get to the top without uh, a little bit of skullduggery here and there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, Rhea, thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Rita Beamish for coming in and talking with us today about President Bush. I also encourage you all to check out her piece on sfchronicle.com. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing today's podcast because whether you're a decent family man who has bipartisan instincts or a venal politician who do whatever it takes to get elected, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. Follow me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli, J-O-E-G-A-R-O-F-O-L-I. 
or can email me at jgarifoley at sfchronicle.com. Support, it's all political and a lot of great journalism with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.